You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. If you can turn with me in your Bibles and remain standing to Genesis chapter 21. A brief word on why we stand for the reading of God's word. This is a 4,000 year tradition. You'll remember in Nehemiah chapter 8 when Ezra, the prophet, stands to read God's word. All of God's people stand to their feet. Um, This is not a Roman Catholic um, tradition. This is a God's people tradition. We stand to our feet as if royalty has entered the room. Because God's word is connected to God himself. And so in very much so, royalty has entered the room. So like a president or a dignitary enters the room, we, we stand out of respect. And so if that's true of earthly dignitaries, how much more of the king of kings. And so we stand for the reading of God's word. And a tradition here at Roots is that after God's word is, is read, the, the preacher or the reader of the word said, this is God's word and, and, and God's people respond Thanks be to God. And we do that. That's also a 4,000 year tradition. Also in Nehemiah 8, when Ezra would read the word, God's people would reply. Would re- they would respond and say, yes and amen. So when we say thanks be to God, we're agreeing that God's word is good as we stand under it. So let's stand under his word now. Genesis chapter 21. We're going to read the whole chapter. So sit down if you need to. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old. As God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, verse seven, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Verse eight, and the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on that day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast this slave woman, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be the heir with my son. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, Be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Verse 13, and I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. So Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water and gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. 
When the water in the skin was gone, she put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him a good way off, about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of my child. And as she sat opposite him, she lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the boy and the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what troubles you, Hagar? Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the boy where he is. Up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand, for I will make him into a great nation. Verse 19, and God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water. And she went and filled the skin with water and gave the boy a drink. And God was with the boy and he grew up. He lived in the wilderness and became an expert with a bow. He lived in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. At that time, verse 22, Abimelech and Philcol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in all that you do. Now, therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me or with my descendants or with my posterity. But as, as I have dealt kindly with you, so you will deal with me and with the land where you have sojourned. And Abraham said, I will swear. When Abraham reproved Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I did not hear of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of the seven ewe lambs that you have set apart? He said, These seven ewe lambs you will take from, your, from my hand. He said that again. He said, verse 30, These seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Bathsheba. Because there both of them swore an oath. So they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech and Philcol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. And Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. This, beloved, is God's word. You may be seated. Well, as we have just read, we are continuing in our study of the book of Genesis, and we come now to chapter 21 in this great narrative of Scripture. Since chapter 12, since chapter 12 of Genesis, we have been following the lives of both Abraham and Sarah. In fact, 25 years has spanned from chapter 12 to our chapter this morning, chapter 21. We have been following Abraham and Sarah for 25 years. And one thing is certain as we have been following the patriarch and the matriarch of the Jewish nation. One thing is certain as we've been following their story. And that is this, God is faithful to his promises and he is patient with his people. And all God's people in here said, Amen. God is faithful 
to his promises and he is patient with his people. Additionally, we have learned by watching the successes and the failures of both Abraham and Sarah. One thing has been perfectly clear in these 25 years of their life, and that is that the best of men are men at best. The best of men, Abraham, are men at best. That indeed no human failure can thwart the will of God. In fact, throughout these chapters, we have seen God move in the hearts of men and women despite the failings of Abraham and Sarah. We've seen God move kings and kingdoms like water in his hands to be faithful to the outcomes that he has promised. We've seen God cut a covenant with Abraham while Abraham slept on the sidelines. We've seen God rescue Lot, Abraham's kinsman, twice. (laughs) Once from the kings of the east and once from God's own judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. In short, we have seen the stubborn sovereignty of God on display as he works salvation for his people. God's sovereignty is stubborn. You know what I mean by that? It's it's resilient. It never wavers. His sovereignty has been on display. And now here in chapter 21, we find the climax of God's sovereign and miraculous work in the life of Abraham. It is a climax. We have been building to this moment, the birth of Isaac, the promised birth of Isaac, the impossible birth has finally come. After 25 years of waiting and doubting and laughing and weeping, It's here in chapter 21 that God opens the womb of Sarah and grants a true descendant of Abraham, thereby fulfilling his promise to bring forth a people through the offspring of Abraham. And of course, as we'll discover throughout our time together in Genesis and wherever we are in Scripture, this is really good news to us. The birth of Isaac is really good news to us as we sit here in the 21st century as Gentiles mainly. This is good news for us today because it is through Abraham's seed, through Isaac and then Jacob, it is through Abraham's seed that we get the offspring of Abraham, namely Jesus the Christ through whom all of the promises of God find their yes and amen. So not only is this good news because it's good news in this story in chapter 21, this is good news for those who call upon Christ as Savior and King. And so with that, let's move through the the text before us. We'll start with the birth of Isaac. I've entitled this point, A Welcomed Laughter. And you'll see why in just a moment. A welcomed laughter. Look at just verse 1 again with me. Moses is writing. He's our author and he records. He says, The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. I'll stop there for just a moment. Notice the simplicity of verse 1 and the profundity. It is a simple sentence, verse 1. You can just kind of read it and keep going, but if you stop and look at it for a while, it is really profound. 
the Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. Right off of the bat in chapter 21, right off of the bat, we are confronted as God's people. We are confronted with an essential truth about God himself. And that is this, that God's word is inseparably linked with God's work. God's word is inseparably linked with his work. Simply put, God keeps his word. He keeps his word. What he says he'll do, he does. Not sometimes, not most times, but every time God decrees or makes a promise, he comes through on what he has said. This is what it means to be God. He speaks and things happen. And again, here in chapter 21, after 25 years of waiting and doubting and laughing at God's promise, God does just as he said he would. And God is the only one who isn't surprised in this moment. Look at verse 2 and following. Here's the the nativity, if you will. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken. Abraham called on the name of his son. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. Verse four, and Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Do you hear the redundancy in this paragraph? How many times Moses records the son who was born to him, the son who was born to him, the son who was born of Sarah unto Abraham. And three times Isaac's name is repeated in just as many verses. Certainly Moses, our author inspired by the Holy Spirit, wants his readers, you and I, to feel the impact of this moment. The impossible has happened and his name is Isaac. The impossible has happened and he has a name. He's a little baby. In addition, Moses makes the point to us, the reader, that this is the time that God has ordained this birth. This time, not a day earlier, not a year earlier, not a year later, but this is the time that God has ordained the birth of Isaac. Not when Abraham was 74, not when he was 89, not when he was 99. No, verse 5 again, Abraham was 100 years old. He was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born. And the question as Bible students is why? Why? Why a hundred? Why now? Why so much waiting for the promise to be fulfilled? And the answer is so that everyone, then and now, everyone would be thoroughly convinced that the only explanation for this offspring, this child, would be this. God Almighty has done this. El Shaddai has caused this birth. 
eternity has broken into the present. When we enter this nativity, we enter holy ground. God chose this time when Abraham is 100 and Sarah is 90 so that everyone would be convinced that God must have done this. God caused this birth just as he said he would. Imagine being Sarah for a moment. She's overcome with emotion. Her laughter of unbelief in chapter 18 is now replaced with a laughter of belief and joy. Look at verse 6. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh over me. In verse 7, and she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Now try to imagine with me this moment. This moment of Isaac's birth. Imagine being Abraham waiting outside of the tent that night. Still with perhaps shreds of doubt that this is actually going to happen, even though he's seen Sarah's belly grow over nine months. And he's waiting, pacing outside of the tent. I'm guessing it's at night. And what breaks the silence of, a, of the night is a, a newborn baby crying. And that's a familiar sound in and around the camps. Surely there would have been babies being born in different tents, but this baby is not crying from this tent or this family. This baby is crying from Abraham's own tent. And the patriarch peers in, pulls back the curtain, and he sees the wrinkled hands of his wife, Sarah, holding a fresh new baby boy. What a, what a scene. And even though Sarah is in her 90s, this is her first baby. She's a new mother. She's old enough to be this baby's great-grandmother or grandmother, and yet she's the mother. She's a new mom. Perhaps she's getting help from others on how to nurse a baby. How do you do that? She's a new mom. Maybe somebody's helping her learn how to properly swaddle a newborn. Surely laughter filled the room. Who could imagine? Sarah says it herself. Who would have told Abraham that I would be nursing his child? God says, uh, me? <laughs> I've been saying that for 25 years. But nobody in that tent. Even me, as I've been your primary preacher through Genesis, I'm reading this account and I'm like, oh yeah, that actually happened. 
These wrinkled old hands held this newborn baby. That happened, and it's surprising. A welcomed laughter fills the room. But Moses doesn't let us linger too long on this joy-filled laughter, does he? I wish he did. I wish there was more than seven verses in this nativity. But the story moves on. And so our first movement is a welcomed laughter. Our second movement is an unwelcomed laughter. Look at verse 8 and following with me. And the child grew and was weaned. I'll stop there for just a moment. That's three years. Between verses 7 and 8 is three years. I'll talk about that in just a moment. But just fast forward, um, if you can, in the narrative so we can get our, our hands around the context. And the child grew and was weaned. And Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, laughing. That's Ishmael. She sees Ishmael laughing. Verse 10. So she says to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son, Isaac. It's It's a bit of a mama bear moment for sure. So three years have gone by now since the birth of Isaac, since the nativity in verses 1 through 7. We know that three years has gone by because it was a tradition in the ancient East to nurse a child up to three years old. And after the child was weaned, typically there would be a feast, a great celebration. And the question that I was asking this week is, why wasn't there a feast and a great celebration when the child was born? Maybe there was, it just isn't mentioned here. Why does the feast come after three years? And the reason is because so many children back then were lost within the first three years of life. And that's why they nursed them for that long. And so after three years, there was a great celebration because it meant that their chance of survival was even greater. And so there's this great celebration for Isaac because he lasts three years. And again, we're reminded that yes, Yes, God's promise to bring a people, a nation through Abraham is going to happen. The child is is three, he's strong, he's weaned. And so a great feast, a celebration breaks out. And no doubt this would have been a celebration for Sarah as well. She's 93 years old. Imagine the exhaustion she is feeling after nursing this child for three years and now trying to run around and and chase after a toddler full of energy and she's 93. So this feast would have been a welcomed celebration for Sarah. But sometime during the great celebration, there's great joy. And I don't know if you've been in a party like this. There's great celebration. There's great joy. Sarah looks up and her stomach turns over. She catches eyes with Ishmael, her stepson, who's now 16. And she sees an unwelcomed laughter. She sees Ishmael not laughing with her, but laughing at her. Ishmael doesn't see 
God's promise on display, he sees something ridiculous. Look at this. This is ridiculous. And he laughs in derision. And Sarah is furious. Again. And she demands that Abraham sin, push out, literally cast away, push out both Ishmael and Hagar. That's it. She's had it. In Sarah's mind, there's no way that her son Isaac is going to be co-heirs with Ishmael, his older half-brother, his 13-year-old, 13 years older half-brother. He's 16 now, and Isaac is three, and, and Sarah's not having it. And no way is Sarah going to live around this kind of mockery in her home. She's not going to tolerate it. And so she tells Abraham, get rid of them. But of course, Ishmael is not a random, snarky teenager, is he? He's not a random teenager in the camp. He's actually Abraham's son. He does have the promise of a great nation in his blood, although he is a son of disobedience. He is Abraham's son. Ishmael is a son of the promise. And so Abraham erupts in disagreement. You kind of miss that eruption. The English translation is a little weak. And look at verse 11. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham. The translation is weak. Abraham erupts with anger. This is a full-on collision between Abraham and Sarah. Sarah says, get rid of your stepson. Abraham says, no, it's my steps. It's my son. And so this thing was very displeasing to Abraham, Abraham on account of his son. But look who steps in to settle the dispute. Look at verse 12. But God said to Abraham, boy, that would be really helpful in marital disputes. If God would just step in and say, hey, let me, let me just, let me settle this for you guys. Here he does that for the patriarch. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you for through Isaac, which is usually the case in a marital dispute. Whatever your wife is saying is true. Whatever you're arguing is not. Just go with that. No, whatever Sarah says to you, says to you, do as she tells you for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now, Although the pushing out and the casting away of Ishmael and Hagar came through embarrassment and ridicule, God is not condoning Sarah's reaction to the laughter in pushing them out. God is not condoning that. However, God does agree that this needs to be the next chapter in the relationship. Because it is through Isaac, it is through Isaac, not Ishmael, that the promised offspring will come. It's through Isaac, not Ishmael. And so God says, let this happen. Let this happen. But this also doesn't mean that God is willing to write off Ishmael and Hagar. He's not willing to write them off. And he continues to extend mercy to them first by the promising of the nation again, that would come through Ishmael and second through provision in the wilderness. Let's look as we finish up this point, look at verse 13 and following. God says, I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also because he is your offspring. 
So, verse 14, Abraham rose early in the morning and took bread and a skin of water, which would have been about three and a half gallons of water. And he gave it to Hagar, putting it on her shoulder along with the child and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. She's in the desert. Verse 15, when the water in the skin was gone, she, Hagar, put the child under one of the bushes. Then she went and sat down opposite him, opposite Ishmael, a good way off about the distance of a bow shot. For she said, let me not look on the death of the child. And she sat opposite him and she lifted up her voice and wept. Now this is a terrifying scene for any parent whose main responsibility is to protect their child from this kind of situation. This is a terrifying scene. Ishmael is dehydrated and he's dying. And so the the moans of death from her 16-year-old son are too much to bear for her. And she can't abandon him. She's not going to run. She can't, she won't abandon him, but she can't be close enough to hear these moans of death from her son. And so she does the best she can. She finds the best possible shade in the middle of nowhere, places him there and backs away just out of earshot from her son. And she weeps and she cries. And although it would seem that all have abandoned Hagar, all had abandoned Ishmael, and all of a sudden eternity breaks in. Eternity breaks in. Look at verse 17. And God heard the voice of the boy. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, What troubles you, Hagar? Fear not one of the most repeated commands in all of the Bible. Fear not. Why? For God has heard the voice of the boy where he is up, lift up the boy and hold him fast with your hand for I will make him into a great nation. Then verse 19, God opened her eyes and she saw a well of water and she went and filled the skin with water and gave it gave the boy a drink and God was with the boy and he grew up. That is Ishmael. And he lived in the wilderness and became an expert with the bow. And he lived in the wilderness of Paran and his mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. We're going to find out in a few chapters, the Ishmaelites that were there in Egypt when Joseph was taken in to that land. But once again, God restores the promise to Ishmael. Ishmael and Hagar may have been pushed out or cast out by Sarah and Abraham, but they were not pushed out or cast out by God. God remembers his promise that a nation would come through Ishmael and God provides replenishing nourishment. That's the key. Notice that God doesn't supply a skin of water, but he supplies a well, a replenishing source of nourishment and life. Abraham was able to supply a skin of water and some bread. That's it, temporary. 
But God provides a replenishing well of nourishment. So an unwelcomed laugh led to Ishmael and Hagar being pushed out, being cast out, but they were not abandoned. God still sees, God still hears, and God provides a nourishing that lasts. And so a welcomed laughter is followed by an unwelcomed laughter. And then God, eternity breaks in and provides the nourishing that Ishmael and Hagar need. Our final scene here in chapter 21 ends with the last encounter we see between Abimelech and Abraham. And only this time, with this encounter, now there is a kind of mutual respect between the two leaders. Abraham, it seems, has been convinced that God's provision is sufficient for him. In fact, Abimelech, instead of Abimelech confronting Abraham like we saw in chapter 20, now it's Abraham who is confronting Abimelech. There is a dispute about a well. Let me look at verses 25 and following with you as we close. When Abraham reproved or rebuked Abimelech about a well of water that Abimelech's servants had seized, Abimelech said, I do not know who has done this thing. You did not tell me, and I have not heard of it until today. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant. Abraham set seven ewe lambs of the flock apart. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What is the meaning of these seven ewe lambs that you've set apart? And he said, Abraham says, These these seven ewe lambs you will take from my hand, that this may be a witness for me that I dug this well. Therefore, that place was called Beersheba, because there both of them swore an oath. So, verse 32, they made a covenant at Beersheba. And Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, rose up and returned to the land of the Philistines. So we have the birth of Isaac, this opening vignette. Then we have this pushing out of Ishmael and Isaac and then grace that's provided to them in the wilderness. And then we get this final interaction between Abimelech and Abraham. The camera just sort of zooms back into these two interactions. And the dispute between them, it seems, is settled. This is just an account of of a disagreement or some tension between them. Abraham Abraham sets aside seven ewe lambs, which is kind of interesting. And he says, if you receive these as a gift from me, then that's a testimony that you agree that this is actually our well and not yours. And so Abimelech says, okay, he takes the ewe lambs and it's settled. This is a fitting bookend to these two encounters between Abimelech and Abraham. The first encounter... Abraham is scared, he's fearful, he lies. And Abimelech has to confront him on his sin. But now Abraham has gained some integrity and some value in the eyes of Abimelech. And this just feels like a fitting book end to the story. As one author writes, he says, there had been grace in the birth of Isaac. 
grace in the departure of Ishmael and, and, and Hagar, and now grace in this treaty at Beersheba. And all of this is true, but this is not how the story ends. Look at what happens in the remaining two verses. This is where we're going to linger as we close. Verse 33. Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba and called there on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned many days in the land of the Philistines. So candidly, this week, I was banging my head against my desk. A tamarisk tree planted in Beersheba. What? (laughs) We've seen Abraham do many things, right? We've seen him build an altar to the Lord. We've seen him raise animals, raise a family. We've seen him provide animals as a sacrifice. We've seen him make camp. We've seen him tear down camp and move. We've seen Abraham, the patriarch, do a lot of things, but we've never seen him plant a tree. Not saying he hasn't, but this is the first time it is recorded that Abraham plants a tree. And Moses goes out of his way to say it is a tamarisk tree. And if you know me, I don't know anything about plants or trees. Why does he plant a tree? And why does Moses go out of his way to tell us the kind of tree it is? And how does it relate to this story? Well, the answer to that question, I think, is wrapped up in the name of God that is given at the end of verse 33. Abraham plants the tamarisk tree and then he calls upon the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. So this tamarisk tree is a sort of monument. It's a sort of altar. A way for Abraham, the the, the man of faith, to remember something about God. He plants the tree and then he calls upon the name of God, the everlasting God. El Olam, or the God who is eternal. So I did some research, and a tamarisk tree is an evergreen. I even had to Google what an evergreen is. It's the type of tree that stays leafy and green all year round. It's a perennial. It stays leafy and green all year round. That's what the tamarisk tree is. It's a type of tree also that is known. The tamarisk tree is known for replenishing fertility. It's known, in other words, for its ability to reproduce itself by constantly shedding seeds. So if you plant a tamarisk tree, you can anticipate multiple tamarisk trees. It's a famous tree for reproduction. And so then Abraham plants this kind of tree at this time because he doesn't want to forget that eternity has broken into his life. He doesn't want to forget 
the replenishing well of life that comes through God alone. Like the miraculous birth of Isaac, his son, and like the well that was in the desert for Ishmael and Hagar, when God comes, he brings life and eternity with him. God brings eternal life. Whenever throughout scripture God shows up, it never is intended to deaden in that moment. When God shows up, he is pulling back the curtain to eternity. That is God's replenishing well of eternal life. The miraculous birth of Isaac is a sign pointing to eternal life with the Father. A well of water in the desert is a sign pointing to the God who brings replenishment, a source of nourishing life or living water. The tamarisk tree is an evergreen that is known for its ability to reproduce and replenish life after life after life after life. And this is a testimony to the everlasting God. The author of Ecclesiastes. For all of the things that the author of Ecclesiastes writes. He says... In chapter 3, the author of Ecclesiastes says that God has put eternity in our hearts. God has put eternity in our hearts. It makes theological sense the God who is everlasting makes man and woman in his own image and in his likeness. And therefore, the products of his creation, his image, are longing for eternity. He's placed eternity in our hearts. That is why we are never satisfied with the trappings of this life, as good as they may be. The best that life can provide, there's always something more They're like skins of water in the desert and morsels of bread. And the heat comes and the dryness comes and the dehydration sets in and we need to fill again. It's all temporary. The best of efforts. And we all ache for something more. We all ache for the everlasting God. Everyone who has ever loved knows this. If you've ever loved anyone, you know this. That what you are experiencing when you love someone, you know that it cannot possibly be the product merely of life under the sun. Maybe there are some causes and effects of life under the sun in the natural order that just makes sense. This is life under the sun. But love, love is not like that. It's a relational dynamic. It's in a relational experience that points outside of itself, love does. It doesn't just deaden in the moment. It longs for something else. 
like C.S. Lewis writes. It's like the man or the woman inside the house looking through the window. They could see the garden. There's something more. The fingerprints of God eternal are on all of these temporary things. And we say to ourselves in the dead of night, surely this is not it. And the Bible says, you're right. It's not. El Alam, God eternal, has broken into the presence, has pulled back the curtains of eternity, and he's beckoning all of us to not let our affections deaden in the here and now, but to plant a tree, to remember the replenishing nourishment, life eternal, eternal, which comes from God alone. So yes, God has put eternity in our hearts. God everlasting has put eternity in our hearts. But please listen, because of our rebellion, because of our sin, we have suppressed that longing. We have pushed it down. We've pushed it aside. Paul says in Romans chapter one, we've, we've abandoned the worship. We've abandoned the worship of creator God and we've turned to created things and we've asked created things to do for us what creator God only can do. We've asked skins of water to nourish us eternally and they keep running out. And because of sin, we could never possess the eternity we were created for. But through the gospel, the glorious good news of the gospel, eternity has come to us. 2,000 years after this miraculous birth in Genesis 21, the birth of Isaac, 2,000 years, another miracle birth would happen to another unlikely woman. This one was not 90 years old. And her name was not Sarah. No, she, this is a more unlikely candidate. She's a virgin teenager. She had never been with a man. This is, this is very unlikely. If 90-year-old if Sarah was unlikely, the teenage virgin, virgin is all the more unlikely. And in the womb of Mary, listen, God the Son, this is, this is distinctly Christian, this doctrine. In the womb of the virgin, God the Son, the imperishable seed, the everlasting God, would put on human flesh. God would become a man. That's the doctrine of the incarnation. In just a few short months, we're going to celebrate that with the advent of Christ, the incarnation. God eternal steps in to the temporal and he puts on human flesh. Eternity, in other words, would enter our space and live among us. The everlasting God, El Alam, is now hidden in the person of Jesus Christ. And would you know, One of the first things that this God eternal now in the flesh, would you know, one of the first things he does is he finds a well. Do you remember this story? 
He finds a well, but not just any well. This Jesus needed to find a well where people outside of the covenant family, like Hagar, would draw from. He doesn't go to the wells in Jerusalem. He finds a well in Samaria, where the Gentiles are, where the people far from God are. But he wouldn't go to this well, this everlasting God in the flesh, Christ himself. He wouldn't go at any time of the day. He wouldn't go in the cool of the evening when the crowds were there or the cool of the morning. No, he goes in the middle of the day. He had to do it, John tells us. Because he wanted to meet with one woman, the everlasting God in the flesh finds a well and he finds one woman at the well. And so we're going to end our time this morning. Oh boy. We're going to end our time this morning with an invitation from this God eternal in the flesh. Turn with me to John chapter four as we close. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he, that is Jesus, left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Look at verse 4. And he had to pass through Samaria. He had to do it. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar near the field that Jacob had given to his son, Joseph. We'll get there in a moment in Genesis. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. And it was about the sixth hour. It's high noon. It's in the heat of the day. And a woman, verse 7, from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, Um, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. 
But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I may not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying you have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet our fathers worshiped on this mountain, uh, and, and, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, which was in a term of endearment, sounds not like that now, but it's a term of endearment. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth. For the father, the father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah is coming. He who is called the Christ. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he.